our mission is to make healthcare better for everyone. And by better, we can define better in a number of different ways. Better means uh, more convenient. It means less expensive. It means easier to access. One of the scandals of our civilization is that there are literally a billion people around the world with no access to healthcare at all. Perfect, Robert. Hey. Hey. How you doing, man? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, so you're calling from the other side of the border in uh, Brooklyn, New York. That's right. uh, love to hear what you're working on. Well, uh, you know, thanks for asking. I'm the founder and CEO of CloudDX, which is short for Cloud Diagnostics. We're a startup now, a scale-up, rapidly growing, um, developer of digital uh, medicine and virtual care technologies. And that includes everything from customized, unique, proprietary medical devices through software platforms to artificial intelligence and automated diagnostics and science fiction come to life. And, um, <laughs> that's, that's quite a breadth of problems you're trying to solve there. Uh, yeah. So let's, let's start with a story of uh, what brought you here. And I'd love to find out more about um, you know, the problems you're, you're hoping to solve. So um, why Connected Health? Uh, what's going on? Well, you know, it goes back actually a long time, back into 20, uh, 2005, rather. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm Canadian. I live in Brooklyn, but I'm from Calgary originally. Okay. And I was living in Vancouver in the early 2000s, and I was headhunted to come to New York City. And what I was really doing was I was bringing Canadian developed technologies to the U.S. market. So I, I did that as a really as a, an independent contractor. And so I had a contract with a company in Vancouver that developed this very advanced um, glow-in-the-dark technology. It's, uh, it's a crazy signage technology. It's used on the space station. It's used in the Pentagon. And at that time in, in New York City, it was being installed in buildings uh, after 9-11. So I represented that product. And then um, I moved on and I represented a very cool space age fire extinguisher product. And uh, that was uh, an amazing, t amazing little journey. And then I was introduced to this, this company in Toronto, in Markham, Ontario. And they had invented a new kind of blood pressure cuff. Hmm. It was a wrist cuff that measured blood pressure, but it did it in an entirely new way, unlike any other device of its kind. It was very advanced at the time. This is 2005. It was before anybody ever heard of cloud computing. That hadn't been, that wasn't a thing yet. Nobody had mm -hmm. said that yet. This was a cloud-based um, medical device. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And I asked them if they had any representation in the US. They said no. I wound up acquiring the rights to the product for the United States. And then through, this is, so this is now in 2009. So we're in 2009 now. This is, and then through it, a, a crazy set of stories, which I will take more than this entire hour to tell, I wound up acquiring the technology and uh, building a company around it. And so mm -hmm. what we've done is we've taken a Canadian invented uh, new way of measuring vital signs and we've built an entire platform that actually delivers telemedicine, virtual care, remote patient monitoring, and even aut autonomous and automated diagnostics. Along the way, we won an XPRIZE. We can talk about XPRIZE. It's a pretty cool thing to do. And now we're growing like crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's pretty cool. You, you worked on a, a great, uh, some great technologies there. Any of them you, you founded yourself or were they projects you joined or the company you worked at? Yeah, so as I mentioned, you know, what happened was I, I first um, acquired the rights to the, the product. Mm -hmm. I set up a marketing company around that to market okay. the product. That marketing company was acquired by the, the manufacturer, the developer of the technology. So I joined okay. their team became the CEO of that company and then spun off the medical device division to create CloudDX. So I'm on my, <laughs> I'm on my third company working with this technology. Yeah, and, yeah. um, and two of those companies, one of those companies I was the CEO of and this, and then two of them, I was the founder of. That's amazing. I mean, that's quite a journey. Uh, <laughs> cool. So let's talk a little bit more about the product and, and, and the problems it solves. All right. So with, with COVID, we kind of, uh, we kind of got, uh, first-hand glimpse on how broken our medical systems are. 
uh, not just in terms of technology being utilized, but how the system itself works and uh, how we get data and how we uh, triage patients, how we deal with the uh, health. Um, what insights can you share about how the system works and where we need uh, we need to improve? Well, you know, uh, the whole healthcare space, the whole medical industry is very conservative for good reasons. You know, it's resistant to change. It's resistant mm -hmm. to innovation because the last place you want to, you know, move fast and break things is in a hospital. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, it's almost always giant multi-billion dollar companies that introduce new technologies like MRIs and, and EM and uh, electronic medical records. It's very rare that a new startup can come along and kind of shake the foundations and move the needle with something completely different. You know, we've been working on it for many years up until last year in 2020 when COVID changed everything. You know, and we found that ourselves, you know, we previous to COVID, we were deploying our technology for a very specific use case, which is uh, chronic care management. So the idea is to take care of people, almost always older people who live at home, they have a chronic illness, uh, they're going to be living with that illness for the rest of their lives. Uh, monitoring can help them to live a longer, more productive and higher quality life. That's mm -hmm. been well proven. That was kind of the market at that point. And then like a switch in March of last year, exactly a year ago, everything changed. Uh, all those sales presentations and all those sales calls dried up. They all disappeared. Nothing happened for about three weeks. And we were kind of freaking out, starting to panic. Like, what are we going to do? And then the phone started ringing. It hasn't stopped ringing since then because care went virtual overnight. Uh, mm -hmm. You couldn't go to the hospital. You couldn't go to the doctor. Uh, there's one hospital system here uh, at NYU here in New York City. It's a fascinating stat. From uh, the, from February to March, no, I'm sorry, from March to April of 2020, the number of virtual visits that they did in their hospital increased by 4,500%. Hmm. It went from a few hundred to tens of thousands overnight. And so, you know, all kinds of rules got loosened, uh, reimbursements were ramped up. And on both sides of the border, the government said, look, we need to just, you know, not see people. So we're going to have to do this by Zoom, we're gonna to have to do it by Skype. We're gonna to have to do it exactly like we're having this conversation today. And so what people, uh, doctors, physicians, healthcare systems very quickly figured out is there's a limit to how much you can practice medicine over Zoom. Uh, you know, we were having a conversation here. If I was a physician and you were a patient, I could ask you how you feel. Uh, you could sort of hold yourself up to the camera and you know, open your mouth. I could, you know, but it's pretty limited how, what we can do here. and. At the end of most of these conversations, if a person was uh, obviously unwell, the doctor usually wound up saying, look, you still have to go to the hospital. I'm sorry, you just have to go to the ER because I can't do much with you. I can't help you. They needed data. They needed information more than just a video conference. They needed vital sign information. They needed pictures of wounds, that kind of thing. And um, so uh, we got the call. And this is what our technology does. We deliver a kit to the patient's house. It consists of vital sign devices like blood our, our, our very cool, very proprietary blood pressure cuff, but also pulse oximeters, weight scales. We have a tablet computer with an app on it that's very easy to use. And that tablet computer has a camera in it where we can take photographs and upload all of that information up into the cloud. So we started you know, very quickly seeing everything from hospital systems to entire provincial governments wanting to deploy remote patient monitoring and a virtual care platform because uh, Zoom conference is not enough. And so our, our business, of course, uh, you know, scaled very quickly. That's always a challenge. You know, there's, there's two big challenges when you're a, a startup entrepreneur and a founder. One is not having enough business. It takes forever to get the whole thing going. You know, how do you find your first customer? How do you find your second customer? That's a very, very big giant problem we all have. The other problem is having too much business. Suddenly mm -hmm. going from zero to hundred miles an hour, you have to hire people you have to buy stock, you have to increase your systems. And we're in a very regulated space, obviously. Healthcare is governed by uh, the you know, Health Canada, the FDA, there's privacy regulations, security regulations, there's ISO uh, certifications required. Uh, we're audited every year for all, you know, for quality management. And so it's not trivial to go from, you know, uh, six or seven or 800 patients on the system to several thousand patients on the system, a 700% increase in our patient base in a, the matter of seven or eight months. But um, this, is, this is how you got to do it. You know, when, uh, mm -hmm. when opportunity knocks, you have to answer the door. Yeah. So 
So now, you know, what happened was we went from that very narrow use case of chronic care management, uh, just taking care of that one thing, to now being, you know, a, a universal toolkit. Mm -hmm. uh, remote patient monitoring today is being used for patients who have uh, are about to go for surgery and then who come home from surgery. So clinicians are monitoring those patients after their surgery. Instead of staying in the hospital, as you normally would, for three or four days, they're discharging people, getting them out, right, so that they're not exposed to COVID, getting them home, monitoring them at home. We're taking care of folks who have COVID. Uh, we have all kinds of clients now who, rather than keeping a person in the hospital if they're not on a ventilator and they have a relatively mild form of COVID, they're sending them home with our technology and they're being monitored at home by a nurse uh, in the same way they would be in the hospital. They're just as safe, but they're isolated. They're, you know, they're not able to infect other people. And, uh, and everybody loves that. No one likes to be in the hospital. You'd much rather be at home and, uh, and still the clinicians know that they can take care, proper care of you and that you're going to have a good, a good outcome. So that's the world we're yeah. in now. I mean, you gave us a lot to digest there. Um, and I want to break this up because I think there's a, a lot of gold in um, you know the, the the issues you, you kind of outlined. Sure. Um, first of all, for, you know, more than technology, more than space, like that particular problem you experienced of growing so fast, especially in a, in a, in a very conservative uh, industry that you're in. Uh, I think that's very interesting because we don't talk about it enough. Uh, a lot of times we heard about startups failing because they run out of money, uh, they got the wrong advice, they made the wrong moves, they couldn't move fast enough, outcompeted by a bigger competitor. But the idea of failing from growing growing too fast. It's not talked about enough. Companies have experienced that. I have experienced that with, a, with my, one of my past companies. You can grow and get burnt out by it, right? Like if you if you don't manage it properly. So I love to hear about the, you know that that uh, that particular struggle of, of how you how you dealt with that. Um, I mean, you it seems to me like you know you're kind of experienced in working with teams and and, and growing product and growing teams and and things like that. Um, you know, was it? like a shock to your system? Like, were you like, oh man, what do I do? Or was it like game time? Like I have, I have you have ideas already in place and you just got to deploy that. Or was it, you have to like construct new ways of getting processes done to move forward, to deal with this. You had to reach out, get advice. Like what kind of, what kind of like environment in the back end that look like when you're growing so quickly? Well, you know, this is not my first startup like yourself. Yeah. So, uh, although I have, this is the, the, the fastest growing company I've ever been in charge of. I have, you know, we very much did have a game plan and it, it's been stress tested, you know, as they say, it's been said many, many times, probably since the Roman Empire, uh, the first casualty of war is the battle plan. But um, what's exciting about growing in a space where you're, you're, you're coping with a kind of a, a very urgent problem is that your, your clients are right there with you, right? So it's not as if we were in a situation where, and this happens to some small companies where uh, they're going along and then all of a sudden, like one big monster gorilla, sometimes it's Amazon, sometimes it's whoever, you know, suddenly says, okay, well, we need 100,000 units. And it's now they're beholden to that one company. And if that relationship goes sideways at some point, or if that's the only big company that they ever attract, that's a very, very serious problem for, for a small mm -hmm. company. We're fortunate that our entire industry is like standing up together. So we have multiple uh, customers and what we learn with, with customer A, we can take to customer B. We're part of a conversation. We're part of a sea change. We're part of a paradigm shift, if you will. We're all learning together in a, in a way. So it's, it's the ideal optimum situation in that way because uh, it's not that we're forgiven for mistakes we make, but it's that we're in an iterative conversation. And so we try things, they work out, we do them some more um, and, and we're constantly reinventing things. We are able to win some pretty major contracts because we're nimble. Uh, that is the benefit of being the size we are. Uh, some of our large competitors, and we compete with some very, very large companies, they're, they're not nimble. They're too, they're too big, they're too bureaucratic. They're not used to trying to outcompete someone who can turn on a dime. And so that's a, it's an interesting place to be. But uh, as you mentioned earlier, the other thing that we're very fortunate in is that we have been able to attract support from a variety of different important sources. The, the story of how CloudDX was financed is actually kind of a special secret key to our success because mm. uh, we don't have any venture capital financiers. 
uh, we've raised a substantial amount of money uh, in the neighborhood of 20 million Canadian dollars, actually a little more than that now. But uh, almost all of the investors in CloudDX are doctors, individual doctors. Wow. wow. Hundreds of them, in fact. We have uh, over 300 individual investors, most of whom are doctors. And so that gave us a very tight relationship with the medical community in both Canada and the United States, but especially in Canada. So in general, when we were uh, you know, beginning to speak to clients or when this question of who should we, you know, urgent situation, who should we use for remote patient monitoring? Does anybody know somebody who does remote patient monitoring? We had a lot of folks who'd like, you should talk to Cloud DX. They're, mm. they're amazing. And so you know, that's not something necessarily you can plan. It just kind of worked out that way. But as we saw that evolving and we saw that happening, we tended to double down. Um, you know, we've raised money in many, many tranches over the years. And at every point where we could have, you know, could have gone with a venture capitalist, we uh, chose not to. We chose to stick with our, that, our method. That's fascinating. Um, I've heard of companies very, you know, being very particular where they raise money from, but to turn potential, co potential customers, clients, or even competitors into pro-consumers, right? They consume your product, but also become advocates of it. Um, I mean, that's one of the pro moves because if you're raising money from the very people who are le you know, leading this industry, the doctors who are prescribing things or are trying to solve these issues for the clients and are you know, trapped within a system that has to evolve, uh, that's so perfect, right? So when you, when you talked about the system that it involved, how did that happen? Like, uh, did you reach out to doctors? Did doctors reach out to you? And um, was, it like a, was it like an organic play that just kind of developed and, and, and became or was it a strategy? I mean, as, as always, when you're fighting for, for your first tranche of investment, it's, it's serendipity. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate that one of my co-founders, a very, very close friend of mine, is a very um, uh, charismatic, very well-connected physician in Ontario, in Toronto, at Oakville, um, who had worked with me in, in the past, you know, and so mm -hmm. I came to him with the idea of founding CloudDX in the first place. And I wanted him to not just be like, you know, an employee or not just be a, even a partner. I wanted him to be a co-founder and having him be there for us as, as a co-founder, co-owner meant that his Rolodex was open and he had the medical chops to explain to those first early friends and literally friends, family, colleague, investors, the ultimate vision, what we were really trying to do. And they bought into that vision. And because our technology really is revolutionary, it really does things no other technology does, then we were in a position to really deeply impress uh, some early, uh, early adopters and investors. So I remember very clearly in one case where uh, a, a colleague, again, not even an employee, was in a, in a medical situation, was able to show a physician how our technology worked. The physician was a cardiologist. He'd never seen anything like that. He said, tell me more. And uh, within a week, that gentleman wrote a six-figure check. And um, mm -hmm. he's one of our earliest. In and then not only that, adopted our technology and is one of our earliest adopters and strongest uh, supporters in the, in the community. So, you know, you, you hope for these things. It's hard to plan for them. You need to let uh, the universe uh, guide you. But if, if you're ever in a position to, to create that kind of relationship with your customers, uh, you must capitalize on it because it's uh, astonishing how successful you can be. That's, that's inspiring. Um, I, I like, uh, I like this uh, model that you're utilizing, you know, cause when it comes to like raising capital, like you know, they always tell you, especially early on, it's so important who you raise from, like who you raise from is more important than actual money. Uh, we, we talk about these ideas of strategic investors, people who come provide like, particular value to a company more than the capital. Uh, and it's becoming more of a thing. Uh, there's a whole industry coming up around it called uh, a capital as a service, right? Like ClearBank and all these right. companies that partner with you. Right. You know, they give you capital, but they also give you a service with it. They do something for you. Yeah. Um, and I think what you, 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 you have um, you know, built around you is like a network of, uh, of supporters, of advocates, the ultimate advocates, people who buy into the firm and then want to support it. So uh, kudos on you, man. That's that's really cool. Um, Thank you. But you know, go, going back to the technology and uh, you know what you guys are building here, what does it what does it mean for you uh, to have like a connected health environment? Like uh, personally, um, are you afraid that you know one eventually when you're gonna need it, uh, you rather have a system that's there, 
you imagine, you picture somebody that you're solving this problem for yourself, future generation, you know, someone in the past. I have a great analogy. I mean, the first answer to that question, there is no particular person that, you know, affected me deeply in the past or anything like that per se. We all know people who have in our past, our parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, great grandparents, who potentially at the, at the end of their lives, you know, did not pass in the way that we would want ourselves to pass. We know that, I know that right now in our current civilization, growing old is not a lot of fun. So one thing that drives us is to invent a world where growing old is more, <laughs> really is a better experience. Um, so that is, that is part of it. Part of it is just, you know, honestly, it's, it's the inspiration that, that comes from watching a lot of sci-fi movies and, and being able to imagine, you know, again, what should the future look like? And here's the analogy that I use sometimes, and it's actually kind of fun to roll out. Imagine online banking. We all do online banking. We're always on the, you know, on the computer, moving money around, paying bills. It's second nature to us now. We don't even think about online banking, but it is a bit of a technical miracle that we trust every penny of our savings and every penny we make to this system that we don't even understand how it works. So imagine if telemedicine was like online banking. If that were the case, if you wanted to actually, so if, sorry, rather imagine what I mean is if, tele, if telebanking, if online banking was like the current state of telemedicine, okay, imagine that. What that would mean is mm -hmm. in order to do a transaction, you would first book a Zoom call with a teller. So you would be like this, we'd be having a Zoom conversation with the teller. They would verify stuff, they would verify your identity, and then uh, you would fax them some documents in a fax machine and sign some different things on in, and then they would arrange for you to pick up your money at a storefront somewhere. You have to get your car, go drive to pick up your money. That's how telehealth works right now. You do an online consult with a doctor, maybe they send you a prescription, you have to go to a drugstore, pick up the prescription. I mean, it's, it's not actually a technological solution. It's taking the brick and mortar solution and moving it piecemeal into a computer. What really has to happen is what happened to online banking, which is if you need healthcare, you, you interact with technology and you get healthcare. And it's that simple and it's totally seamless. So you have an autonomous conversation with an, an artificial intelligence. They diagnose you and then an Amazon drone drops off your prescription or you're able to do your imaging yourself with technology and, and your home is, provides that technology. So you can get care without any other humans involved. Mm -hmm. That in fact is the vision of the future that we're participating in creating. Autonomous diagnostics, uh, artificial intelligence, augmented reality. Yeah. And it really was inspired by the, the, the Tricorder XPRIZE competition, which, was, uh, which I can tell you about if you like. The XPRIZE is a, yeah. is a foundation in California. Uh, a lot of folks have heard of XPRIZE. The first XPRIZE was for human spaceflight, the Ansari XPRIZE. And it was a $10 million competition for the first company that could send a human into the edge of space twice in one row, twice in a row in one week. The winner of the Ansari XPRIZE was a company called Scaled Composites, which was partly owned by Paul Allen, the, one of the founders of Microsoft. They sold the technology to Richard Branson and it became Virgin Galactic. So the $10, million, $10 billion market cap Virgin Galactic space enterprise was the winner of the, the first XPRIZE. Our, oh. our XPRIZE was the Tricorder XPRIZE. So what we signed up to do was invent a working Star Trek medical tricorder, just like Dr. McCoy used on the show, that could autonomously diagnose diseases, could constantly monitor vital signs, without any input from a human doctor. There were 330 teams that signed up for, the, for that X prize. It took three years. Uh, there were three winners, uh, one of which was CloudDX. And now we're commercializing the technology that we invented to win the Tricorder X prize. Man, that's amazing. Yeah. That's one of the coolest stories I've heard. So, a okay, so, man, you got me all worked up here because <laughs> One of the things that really excited me about this industry, right, was a study that came out a few years ago. Um, China, right? China got, I think, the, 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 their top 500 doctors, and they put them against a, a, a AI, an AI diagnostic tool. And the idea was to figure out, um, you know, the, the, the idea was that one-third of di diagnostics in the medical industry 
is wrong. Um, there's always there's there's, there's frequent misdiagnosis uh, because not all doctors are built the same, right? And doctors have to uh, ha, you know have to individually have to uh, have access to so many uh, wide breadth of knowledge in order uh, to diagnose somebody, and you have to be constantly updated. And he, different doctors are at different skill levels, and they have different knowledge and different experiences and expertise. And you as a consumer are just jumping around trying to like you know. Uh, get like second opinions, third opinions, and like you know, and the health network itself is trying to build around that. But it's a human component that is uh, the most uh, the most uh, flimsy, right? Because it's all by chance who you get paired up with, who your family doctors, who the ER doctor that sees you, like who you get to, is by chance. It's completely dependent on um, you know what what level of diagnosis you get, and how accurate that becomes. So they wanted to test us out, and they compete, competed. Five hundred of the top, uh, you know, uh, their top doctors against the AI machine, and the AI machine won, right? I think this was in 2017, 2018, and that's how the whole industry kind of got up and like, okay, what does this mean? Right. Because what that means is you can replace like a, you know, four-person doctor clinic uh, that needs to operate with like a device, uh, and like a, and you pay like a couple of nurses. Right to just be, to be there to operate, and you can now have you know have quadruple five times fifty times the volume of, pe- of people can go in and get scanned and kind of acknowledged here, kind of get kind of get figured out. But what you're taking this is even further, saying why can't we even do this at home, more real time, right? That's Take right. out the complete travel of having them go into a physical location. That's right. Right, um, you know the plaza model, the replacing the actual uh, family office. Um, uh, uh, we've heard that before. But I think this, what you're talking about is truly ambitious, is, uh, you know, how do we turn one of these into a diagnostic tool, right, that you can carry around and, uh, and get real feedback from? And I think that's really a really holy grail of, uh, of, um, of health, right? With, when Apple, think of the Apple Watches. Apple Watches, like when you, if you wear them, they, they can, within 5 to 15 minutes uh, ahead of time, they can detect, a, uh, I think, a, a heart attack. Based off of measuring your impulses of the, how your heart's beating and detecting irregularities, it's trained its algorithm to so a point where it can automate that. And that's why almost a vast majority of uh, Apple Watch users are actually geriatric patients, right? Using it as a health connected health device. Um, and imagine what we can do if you can, you know, get like a doc, like the world's best doctor, or a combination of all the best doctors. But you have access to them always monitoring you and getting your feedback. Uh, uh, you know, there's that 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 the being able to jump on top of things before they happen. It's so instrumental. It's true. I mean, it's, again, you, you think about what the future should look like. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our mission is to make healthcare better for everyone. And by mm-hmm. better, we can define better in a number of different ways. Better means uh, more convenient. It means less expensive. It means easier to access. One of the scandals mm-hmm. of our civilization is that there are literally a billion people around the world with no access to healthcare at all, yeah. right? They live their entire lives and the closest they can get is boiling some bark and, you know, they just have nothing. They have nothing. It's, it's, it's astonishing, really. Two billion people around the world are infected with tuberculosis. We have a tool that, mm. that's currently in clinical trials that could help detect tuberculosis just using a smartphone. Uh, it's part of our tricorder. And the problem we're solving with that tool is that 10 million people get sick every year and 1.4 million people die every single year from tuberculosis. It's as big as the COVID pandemic every single year, year after year after year. That has a technical solution and we hope to be part of that. So there's no question that as we live our lives, as we get older, we're going to be using these tools more and more and more and more. Having said that, you cannot pull the human doctor out of the equation entirely. Many, many studies and surveys have been done saying that the vast majority of people are not comfortable only receiving medical care from technology. They need that human touch. They need that empathy. They need to know someone actually is caring for them and taking care of them. Doctors and nurses are not going anywhere anywhere soon. But when you talk to doctors and nurses, they'll tell you that there's big parts of their job they hate. I know that because I have 300 plus doctors who've invested in my company. I talk to doctors every single day. And they love that part. They love the part about caring for people. They love the part about being part of people's lives. What they hate is they hate the paperwork, they hate the bureaucracy, they hate the boring, repetitive, seeing you for five minutes, writing you a prescription for something, seeing you for five minutes, they hate that part. So part of the reason we have so many doctors supporting CloudDX is that our mission is not 
to replace doctors. Our mission is to make healthcare better for everyone, including doctors and nurses. And we do that by allowing them to be more human. We reduce the bureaucracy. We use technology to make their jobs more efficient. So our technology for the foreseeable future isn't going to completely replace the doctor. It's gonna augment the doctor. It's gonna give the doctor and the nurse and the respiratory therapist and the physical therapist, it's gonna give them superpowers, knowledge at their fingertips. They're gonna know more about you. They're gonna know uh, your, your, your vital signs and how you've been feeling and your symptoms. They're gonna know that for a whole period of time rather than just for the five minutes they just met you and they're trying to take all that down and they're trying to measure all that stuff. They're gonna have access to longitudinal data. We can combine that with genetic data. We can combine that with population data. So what's going on in your, in your town and your postal code, what's happening to uh, people your age, people who have similar uh, genetics than, than yourself. All of that is the kind of stuff machine learning algorithms just love. They just love to crunch that data, come up with patterns that are too complicated for, uh, for you know, normal math to see that lead to faster care, better care, more convenient care, care at home versus in the four walls of the clinic. Uh, and that's, that's the future we're talking about. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're right. I mean, when you're talking about like what's what's possible now, we always have to ha you know augment the human element, right? And that's and that's where it's really interesting right now. How do you take uh, you know the the manual work out of any kind of job? I, I, you know, I heard this quote recently. It's like the whole purpose of technology is to take what's available to the rich and and democratize and give it to everybody. Right. Right. Um, currently, if you live within if you're within the one percent of the one percent, right. Um, your average lifespan is 10 to 20 years more than the, the remaining than, the, than the, the human average, right? Sure. So the average right now is 70 years. You, you know, if you're within the one percent, one percent, because of the health, just because of the health network you have, the private facilities and 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 um, the com creature comforts, you have 10 to 20 years on, on top of the average. And if we can democratize that, you know, be able to provide that, everyone actually benefits, right? The idea being that. It's better to be a poor person now in today's society than uh, some than like aristocrat in like Henry V's era, I, right? I have often observed that myself. I agree with you 100% on that front. Mm -hmm. and, and we see right. that in our, in our work. One of the things we're doing is deploying new technology to places in Africa like Mozambique. And the interesting mm -hmm. thing about the developing world is that uh, quantum leaps can be made. You can be in an area that has zero access to technology, that doesn't have a phone, they don't have uh, any, you know, any access. And then you can plop in a cell phone tower, you know, solar powered, and all of a sudden they have internet, they have telemedicine, they have access to the market stats and they can know what their, what their crops are going to, uh, you know, um, fetch in the market. They have access to yeah. uh, clinicians or uh, community care workers who can come out and see them education. Now they can take class. So they've gone from, you know, one era of the world, which was almost pre-industrial, to a very modern era, right? And this happens yeah, yeah, all, yeah. all over the world, in, in India and China and parts of Africa and Central America. So we're thrilled about that because you can deliver a tremendous amount of care over a $30 Android phone. It's astonishing what you can yep. accomplish. So that's very, yeah, very yeah. cool. That's very cool. And, you know, our friend Elon is putting Starlink into space, 40,000 satellites that will bring gigabit internet to every square inch on earth we're actually extremely excited about that too because the the more bandwidth we have the more the more care we can deliver yeah i mean that's especially going to be really interesting especially for iot devices yeah. right because now a device can be connected from anywhere across the world you don't no longer have to figure out okay how do i get this thing connected to the internet if we're going to try to help especially a remote remote place right uh especially elon's like starlink uh, platform it's gonna be really interesting to how to rapidly re-industrialize um the non-industrialized parts of the world but what you're talking about you know that rapid space of urbanization it's so interesting um funny enough i actually uh saw something about this um google released this right they're like they did this whole study of like you know past 10 years they've been trying so hard to chase the 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 the, the the 4 billion people who are not connected to the internet and bring them into the connected world, right? Yep. And one of the studies they realized is that it doesn't matter how much utility they give them. It's like, hey, here's access to the internet. Here you can have access, you can read, you can watch, you know, you sorry, you can you can read, you can get all these tools, you can use this calculator thing, all these, like, they're like, yeah, this is cool, interesting, but really what got them as people to stick was entertainment. Of course. 
You get them YouTube and Netflix, yep, they they get hooked on, absolutely. and then everything can kind of becomes a secondary benefit around that. Yep. So now, um, like Google, Amazon, uh, and Facebook, and Microsoft, the big the big four, uh, what they're doing is trying to use the entertainment angle to try to get the uh, the, to- the top ones connected, uh, like to, to get the bottom the bottom uh, half of humanity who has not connected into the connected world, uh, using the entertainment angle. But now Elon's trying to build this whole satellite network around right. us, right? But um, yeah. That's cool. You know, this is this is great ambition, right? Like to be able to like, um, you know, rapidly provide resources into under-resourced areas. I always thought about this, right? Yeah. Like, imagine the leverage and imagine the, the 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 resource gain when you go to an improv area and just drop like what is relatively a small sum of resources to a industrialized nation into that. You know, you put like a hundred thousand dollars worth of resources, a uh, million dollars worth of resources. The impacts there were like, you know, the GDP is like marginal. Right, it's like you're dropping like their their entire yearly GDP into that area at one time. It's you know the returns on that is enormous, right? Yeah, we have to be careful too, though. You know, not to be, frankly, you know, elitist and say you know we're going to come and you know we're going to come and save the world. It's a collaboration. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the, the technology we're developing with our partners in Africa isn't about you know us fixing something. It's about working with them to understand their needs. And, um, and then if there's a solution that we can help provide, developing it with them. You know, this is a big part of, of what drives CloudDX, you know, from the point of view of equality and, and inclusion. Um, you know, the more attractive we can make our technology, the more accessible it becomes. And that was a very interesting yeah. part of the XPRIZE that we were part of, because I have to give Peter Diamantis is the founder of XPRIZE. And his vision when he created that competition was, it's not enough to, to create super cool technology that just works in a lab, right? So 50% of the winning points to be a winner in the XPRIZE was consumer user experience testing. So your tricorder couldn't just be a bunch of wires and you know boards and cables. It wasn't enough that it worked. It had to look like a consumer product. It had to feel like something you would buy and take home with you. It had to give you that consumer experience that was so easy and frictionless and seamless that you're like, I don't want to let this go. I don't want you to take this away from me. I've tested it and now I want to keep it because this is amazing. Mm-hmm. That was a big part of it. And that I think does, doesn't get enough attention when you think about delivering healthcare, because it's not enough to be, uh, you know, if you think about what a hospital normally looks like, it's not enough to be, you know, efficient and effective. It has to be user-friendly. And that, I think, is starting to sink in when you think about helping people stay at home longer, whether they have COVID in this current emergency, but after COVID has been conquered, you know, we have a lot of other challenges to face. Chronic illness is the biggest one. It's by far the largest single expenditure in the healthcare system, 20% of all healthcare spending, which is $1.9 trillion around the world, 20% of that goes to a tiny fraction of patients who have chronic disease. And so helping those patients to actually use technology, it can't be, it can't be frightening, it can't be challenging, it can't be buggy. You know, there's a myth that older people are uh, not technically literate. It's not true. Mm-hmm. And when you think about that for a second, that's ridiculous. Our grandparents and great-grandparents were the ones who invented the airplane and the car and the radio and the microwave and the fridge. And you know, all of our technology that we take totally for granted was pioneered by people who are you know, in their 80s now. So it's, it's, a, it's a patronizing and, and stupid thing to say that they're not technologically literate. What they are is impatient. They're impatient about technology that doesn't work very well. So they're not going to go on Reddit and look up the instructions. They're not going to go on a forum and try to figure out how it works. They're not going to read 17 pages yeah. of instruction manual written in one language and then translated through three other ones. They're not going to do that. It has to work out of the box. And it has to work yeah. really well, very simply. And then they're just as addicted to it as all the rest of us. And so we took that to heart at CloudDX. And so when we make our, our, our technology, it does exactly that. It works out of the box. It's designed for folks who are in their 70s and 80s and 90s, and those folks, they love it. They have like 100% recommendation scores. They say, I recommend this to anybody, and they use it every single day. So we're very proud of that, too. We're very proud of the way that we approach our client base. That's that's awesome. Um, I I love the passion that uh, you have when you you talk about this because – 
um, you know, you're clearly, you're, you're clearly well, well versed in this, in this problem set because the, the whole industry around aging and aging in place, aging at home, yeah. right? I think it's, I think it's really a lot of potential. I mean, look what happened to all the long term care facilities when Corona hit, right? We yeah, saw right? The, all the holes, right? Yeah, like that was there, but especially from the human element, right? Like, yeah. you know, when people are aging and, and out of place, out of sight, they're not as that's taken care of, you know, the people now look at this and say, you know, most of uh, the people that own homes, the, the class of people that own homes are people retiring, right? Like the, 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 the baby boomer generation that's, 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 uh, you know, aging, aging up and they don't want to go out, right? Like oh. previously it used to be like that, you know, that you sell your, your property, you move into your kid's house and the kids then ship you out into the retirement right. home, right? Or try to keep you at home if they, if they can. Right. But uh, now, People who are aging, they're like, well, I don't want to go to my kids. You know, I don't want to be dependent on other people. Like, why can't I you know, continue to be self-reliant? I think technology is allowing them to do that. You know, have that dignity while they age, to have that kind of support systems. You know, I've seen um, connected uh, health devices like, you know, there's these infrared cameras you can put around your house, and if it's if it's a certain acceleration in your body, like it'll track your track bodies, and it'll start a certain a certain acceleration, like aka a fall, it'll just automatically just you know ping a ping a ping someone to come and check upon you. Yeah. Right. And that gives that kind of security of someone watching over you without someone actually watching over you. Yep. Uh, right. So connected, connected health, I think, has a lot of different applications, a lot of different layers. And uh, diagnosis is, I think, is, is definitely the most interesting. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, as as we develop these technologies, they all have to mesh together. And one of the one mm-hmm. of the things I love about our business is that um, as much as we're fierce competitors and we really are. Yeah. We also, though, are happy to collaborate. And so, you know, more often than not, we will integrate yeah. with our competitors. We will. Yeah, sorry, I, just, I got a notification pop up saying the battery's dying. I'm like, I don't understand. Yikes. Yeah, so sorry, Robert. I mean, um, you, you were speaking no yeah, about the importance of this and uh, the, the industry as you see it. Yeah, so people ask me all the time, you know, aren't you worried that Apple is getting into your business with the Apple Watch detecting heart rate and, and, and in some cases, blood oxygen and that kind of thing? You know, the implication being that as soon as Apple turns their attention to a business, they dominate it and the little companies are dead and it's, it's, um, it's all over. And I push back hard on that because, first of all, although we build vital sign devices, that's the small part of what we do. The only reason we actually build our own vital sign devices is because it gives us data that no one else can give us. We are a data company. Mm. Very clear. We are a data company, a data science company. We're building an enormous lake of very, very interesting healthcare data that's anonymized, but it's easy for machine learning to work with to try and make healthcare better for everyone, obviously. So we're not scared of the Apple Watch because you know, Apple publishes an SDK. We could integrate with the Apple Watch. If people really want to use their Apple Watch and be on our system, we can make that happen. And that's true of other companies that make vital sign devices. So we integrate with the best, but we also, we go beyond that and create uh, technology that does things that, that the others don't do yet. We hope to, to, to actually break new ground. The biggest possible compliment we could ever have is if a company like Apple or a company like Amazon or a company like Microsoft tries to rip us off mm-hmm. because First of all, we have patents that we can hopefully defend. But secondly, it means we're onto something, right? Like yeah. if our way of doing things becomes so powerful that other companies start to copy us and try to find ways around our patent, that means we've changed the world. That is actually what we're trying to do. Super. So that, that would be very cool. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very good way of putting it. I mean, we, we, we hear data being thought of like as a new oil, right? Everyone's trying to get it. Everyone's trying to uh, try to value it. Right? Can we can we dive into that side of the economy right now, especially with especially with yeah. especially with like health data, right? Because health data is so precious. Um, Yuval Harari, um, the the Jewish um, the Israeli uh, historian, right? He wrote the book um, um, Sapiens and and Homo Dux, like the future of mankind, and he talks about like healthcare data being one of the most precious forms of data because with healthcare data you can have an insight into human biology of how the, how people work, how you know. Um, what illnesses they have, how they think, how they interact with the physical world. There's so much da- so much richness to that. And with that, I mean, you can literally have, you can literally like if uh, merge with machines uh, can have like, a blueprint of how that, uh, how that person operates, right? And Maybe. right now the biggest, the biggest leader in, 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 in data and data management, is like Facebook, right? They, they utilize uh, our, uh, like data from different aggregate, from different sources to figure out how to sell us, 
ads, right? That's what not the, not always for not always for good. Not always for good. Potentially, right? But um, one of the things I want to talk about is like data and the potential behind it, right? Healthcare data, like how do we protect it? How do we securitize it? But also, what can we? How can we utilize it, right? Once we have like you know our data sitting in a, in a, in, a, in, a, in the cloud that can be accessible. What does that look like to the connected health uh, world, right? Does it mean um, me as a person, I can I have almost an electric file to all my data inputs, my health chart, charts, my, my x-rays, all those kind of things that I've done, and then I can just pass it along to different services or give serv different services access to it that, um, that can give me and triage me better results? Yeah, so I, I like to discuss two concepts when it comes to, to healthcare data the concept of wide data and the concept of deep data. So what wide data means to me is population data. So if I have 100,000 or a million or 10 million people using my technology one day, which we don't have yet, but we plan, you know, obviously we'd love to at some point. Mm -hmm. And all that data, you know, without extractive identity, anonymized, but, uh, you know, we're not the only ones with this vision. Uh, during the early part of the pandemic, uh, there's a, a company called Kidza that makes a connected thermometer. And they were able to prove with a, uh, an actual published study that they could detect the presence of COVID-19 patients about uh, five, or seven, five to seven days before the testing started to really show that. So they, they could see a hotspot pop up before the tests came in and proved that it was there because they had that data, that, that population-based data. Um, you know, this is not a new idea. Again, you know, uh, Google has shown in another study that uh, just by uh, finding out where most people are Googling flu symptoms, they could predict flu outbreaks. Now, take that idea and multiply it by a billion. Mm -hmm. So imagine now we have enormous amounts of data on millions of people. We have their ECG readings. We have their temperature readings. We have surveys they filled out about their symptoms. We have their location accelerometer gyroscope uh, data that shows their gait, their, their air quality data. We, we take all of that data and we stack, start stacking it up one on top of each other and making connections using machine learning so that we can start to say, you know, not just uh, in the next 10 minutes, but in 10 years, this, this area, these people are going to have uh, lung cancer. They're going to have more lung cancer than, than statistically they normally should because of these factors, or they're going to have some other a bad outcome. So the whole idea is to get ahead of bad outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. The earlier you can possibly learn about a potential bad outcome, the more time you have to take action, change lifestyles, change diets, improve access to fresh food, improve living conditions. We often forget that healthcare is more than just drugs and hospitals and splints and doctor's offices and surgery. Healthcare includes having a roof over your head. It includes having enough to eat every day. It includes living in a world with, with uh, low levels of stress. So you're not constantly in a, a panic fight or flight mode, yeah. which unfortunately millions of potentially hundreds of millions of people around the world uh, are suffering today. So all of that is included in healthcare. So the wide data concept is the more we learn, the more we can predict, the more we can get ahead of it and make, uh, and make corrections and improve life for everybody, everybody on the planet. So that's the wide data concept. We're very excited about that. We're contributing to that. We believe in that. The deep idea is about a person, a single person. So if you start to use technology like ours when you're in your 30s or 40s, and you take your vital signs, and you go to 23andMe, and you get your genome sequence, so you got your genetic data, and you, you know, like some of us, you kind of you know, write down what you eat, or you, you count your calories, you use a, an aura ring like I have here that monitors your sleep and it monitors your your uh, activity or you use a fitbit or you're wearing an apple watch and it's gathering activity data so you do that in your 30s or 40s and you combine that with that population data so that when you go to your physician they say you know you are potentially in a group that might have this bad health outcome when you're 60 or 70 or 80 and we're going to get ahead of it you know we're going to help you avoid congestive heart failure, which is one of the largest killers of people all over the world. Um, second only to, um, so congestive heart failure is actually first. Uh, obstructive pulmonary disease, emphysema, is the second high, largest killer of people around the world. Together, they're, they're much worse than cancer. Uh, and then uh, the third is stroke. And there's a lot of different things you can do about stroke. So 
if we can figure out how to conquer those diseases, then we give everyone the maximum amount of years of their life that they can have. So that's that personalized medicine, that, that, that very deep data about you personally that can help you avoid things that might've happened to your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents, whether it's cancer, whether it's heart disease, whether it's dementia, what can we do about that right now? And the earlier you start gathering that data, the better. The trick is that it can't be onerous. It can't be too hard. If you have to spend a lot of time doing it, folks don't do it. It has to be automated. It has to be just part of your world around you. That's why I love this. This is a company from Finland you may or may not have heard of. Mm-hmm. That's called the, oh, or, the Aura Ring. Yeah. And when I found this, I was like blown away. This is some of the coolest tech I've ever seen. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I've, I've met the founder. I met him at a trade show years ago. And we were both starting our companies. Really, really great, great company. This is the kind of thing where you don't even notice it. You know, it's just a ring. You don't even, it's, that doesn't look like tech. And yet it's gathering a tremendous amount of really interesting information. And so, you know, we're working on that concept. We have wearables in, in the lab and in the clinical trials that will eventually, I hope, look like jewelry, but we'll gather the same amount of data as an ICU bed in a hospital. Yeah. And we'll be able to give you that. So when you combine wide data and deep data, now you're really talking. Now you're talking about... You get insight. You get deep insight. You, yeah. Yeah, it, not only about yourself, but where you fit into the bigger picture. And so now if you're a government and you have a certain amount of healthcare money to spend, you spend it at the very best possible way. You get the most bang for your buck. If you're an insurance company, you get to you know improve your bottom line, basically. You reduce your claims because everybody's just living longer and they're healthier uh, that whole time. And if you're, uh, if you're a city or a town, you know, now you know how to plan for everything from bike lanes to hospital beds and so on and so on and so on. It just keeps getting better and better and better. So it is, I think, the highest and best uh, use of data in our entire civilization at the moment because it's the place where data is least used today. You know, There are still an enormous number of uh, doctor's offices in Canada that run on paper. They literally use the facts. They're not in any way using electronic medical records. They're not tracking anything. Everything is still on paper, which is, you know, it's survivable. It's worked for 150 or 200 years, but it's not adding to the solution to the problem, which is, you know, people don't have that, that data. If they move provinces and they move states or they move from one country to another, they can't take their medical records with them. So you've got to start over. Every time you go to the doctor, they take your vital signs again because there's no place that they can go for data that they can trust on you know, how you're really doing. If, if you had to say there's one problem we're trying to solve, it's that problem. 